Hi everyone, I'm Guangjin, the producer of Empires, an Asian business podcast. For the past few episodes, we've introduced to you the origin story of Sony and where they are today. From their humble beginnings in Tokyo's Scotchlands to their greatest inventions such as the PlayStation. For our final episode on Sony, we have a guest with us who is familiar with Japan, but more importantly, with Sony's impact to global culture. My name's Matt Alt. I am American born and raised. I moved to Japan in 2003, where I co founded what's called a localization company. It's called Alt Japan. And we specialize in producing the English versions of all sorts of Japanese entertainment. I knew Matt first when I read Pure Invention How Japan Made the Modern World. It was an easy read that gave me deep context about Japan's many amazing soft power, like anime, Hello Kitty, and of course, consumer electronics such as the Walkman. I reached out to Matt, and he kindly decided to speak with us to give us more context about Sony. So, let's get on to it. Matt. Our very first question is what's Sony's greatest contribution to global culture? Well, I think Sony's biggest contribution to global culture is that more than any other company, they made technology cool. They made technology a fashion. Before Sony came around, things like headphones were seen as mainly for, for technical applications, like people like working a radar station or like for the hearing impaired, you know, and things like televisions and radios, well, they were important, but they were basically appliances that you put in your home. And through the simple act of shrinking things down, that's really what Sony was most known for in the post war era, making consumer electronics as small as possible. But through that simple act, they managed to transform electronics from gadgets. Into status symbols. And probably the most obvious and famous example of that is the Walkman, which came out in 1979 in Japan and 1980 in the United States and, and other regions. And it was a portable tape deck. It played audio cassettes and allowed you to walk around and listen to them on headphones. Now, today, this sounds like you know, a very obvious thing, but when this product came out in, in 1979, 1980, it was revolutionary. Until that point, music had been like a shared experience. You all had to listen to a radio together or a record player or a stereo. The, the Walkman allowed you to do it privately, but most importantly, it let you do it portably. And just the sight of those headphones became a status symbol in early 1980s fashion circles. Thanks for sharing. I quite like the point on miniaturization. We didn't mention it in detail in our podcast, but for the listeners at home,、uh, for a time period, right? The next best version of a phone is if it was smaller, which is obviously very different from today, where the best flagship phones are those with bigger screens. But a question for you, Matt, is then why don't these influencers stay? For example, why don't we chase miniaturization anymore? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting because both in, in, in the case of headphones and in the case of smartphones, we basically hit a point. I would say the 2010s, where miniaturizing any further stopped making sense. Like phones had gotten very thin, you know, earphones had, had become earbuds. And suddenly people started demanding things other than just lightweight portability out of their products. 
they spent so much time on their cell phones that they wanted bigger screens. And so particularly in East Asia, you would see people getting these like giant, almost tablet-sized cell phones, very large, that they would carry around in a bag with them. And they'd be happy that it would be bigger because it was, you know, a bigger screen for them to use. And headphones had been hugely influenced among young people in particular by DJ culture. And, and so DJs have to wear really big headphones, almost old fashioned looking. Of course, they're much lighter weight now and much higher spec, but when you're in a club, you need to wear bigger headphones to kind of block out the noise of the club. Of course, DJs, they're kind of trendsetters. They're very cool people. So young people want headphones that look like that. And that's what like Beats by Dre, for instance, and other companies now compete by making really big headphones, which is ironic because for a long time, the whole point was making them as small and as lightweight as possible. Right. And a natural extension to this question then is, uh, why did Sony miss out yeah. on all these trends? Well, I think it's important to say like Sony is not a loser. Do you know what I mean? They're still like a major multinational company. They're very like their their PlayStation and their VR departments are are very well regarded. Like everybody wants a PlayStation 5, you know. But if you're talking about the sphere of cultural influence and and kind of trend setting, yeah, it's there's definitely a before and an after. And I think you can really trace the 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 shift to Akio Morita. Morita fell sick from a stroke and couldn't work anymore. And this, neither could Ibuka. And I think in the mid 1990s. And I think the loss of those two visionary people caused Sony to turn from a, a, a sort of visionary company into a, a pretty standard industrial conglomerate. Both of those men had very strong visions about what they wanted to see. Ibuka was obsessed with audio, at first with tapes and then with other forms. Morita saw the potential of technology to be something more than just gadgets and appliances. He saw it as, as being kind of fashion items, lifestyle items, even, even a form of identity for the consumers, which is why he spent so much time courting uh, like famous people. He made sure even early on that like, Samples of his products went to celebrities, went to sports stars, went to musicians and, and people who would then tell their friends and tell their friends and be seen using them. When those people left, I think it became a lot more difficult for Sony to innovate in unexpected ways. I think that Morita and, and Ibuka's leaving the scene is, is kind of key to Sony's change. Fair. Matt. In our episodes prior, we brought the listeners through to the transitionary periods of Sony uh, without touching too in-depth about Morita and Ipuka's passing. But instead, uh, we kind of hinted it as a function of the lost decades. Could you share more about the lost decades for the benefit of the listeners and its effect on Japanese people and culture? Japan was an economic titan for the 1970s and 1980s. It was destroyed during World War II, as we all know. But by the late 1960s, it had rebuilt and, and re-emerged as the world's second largest economy, which was hugely surprising to Westerners. And it was a time of kind of glory for Japan. And it was a time of glory for salarymen, you know, the, the, the business people, mainly men, who, who kept the Japanese economic engine going. And Japan, was hugely ambitious then, but that all came crashing to a halt in 1990 with the bursting of what's called the bubble, the bubble economy. The, the Nikkei crashed and then it took the, the real estate market with it. 
And a lot of people, average citizens, lost a lot of money. And the entirety of the 1990s and 2010s are now called by economists the lost decades. That experience of flying high and then suddenly, unexpectedly being plunged into turmoil and kind of financial apocalypse, I think really dulled Japan as a whole. It's hunger for risk. It became a lot more risk adverse. It became a lot more inwardly focused. Now, it's important to say here that the things I'm saying are huge, broad picture statements. There's always been entrepreneurial Japanese people, and there still are, and there still will be on an individual level. But societally speaking, you just see a great turning inward in the 1990s and 2010s that really has not stopped. You know, it, it's, it used to be in the 70s and 80s that you were, if you graduated from college, you were guaranteed a career for your entire life. That stopped being the case in the 90s. Things like the gig economy, that came to Japan a lot earlier than it did to the West. There was a word called frita, friter, which is basically what we use now for a gig economy type person. You started to see people living at home with their parents for extended periods. You started to see new words enter the lexicon of the 1990s, like hikikomori, somebody who never leaves their house at all. So you saw this kind of, I don't know, shrinking of dreams happening in Japan. And it affected all spheres of society, business, entertainment, leisure, youth culture. And so I think you're right to, to, to note that there was a, a big shift there that kind of marks a before and after, kind of like Sony on a, on a, on a global level. Okay. And Matt, uh, do forgive me, but I actually asked you to explain the lost decades uh, so that we could contextualize the toughest question for today. So for the listeners at home, um, depending on your reference point, the last decades could stretch for as long as 30 years. Which begs the question, in your opinion, why isn't Japan able to escape the last decades for so long? There's a, there's a couple of different ways of looking at this, right? It's my feeling that the products that Japan made during the 1990s and, and early 2000s, right in the middle of its lost decades, arguably made it more relevant than ever. You know, Japan made itself rich by selling the world everything it needed, like cars and appliances, but it made itself loved by selling people, the selling the world things it didn't need, but desperately wanted. Things like portable video game systems, virtual pets, its services, emoji, image boards, anime, manga, fandoms for adults. All of these sorts of things originated in Japan and gave us sort of a roadmap for navigating through post-industrial so-called late capitalist societies. But if we are talking about the fate of Japan, what it became, it's not an outlier and it's not a example of a failed state or anything like that. It's what happens when first world countries move away from industrial production, they become post-industrial societies, they become information societies, and most importantly, when they hit financial problems. Japan isn't some kind of strange country. It's kind of a canary in the coal mine because it hit all of these milestones of post-industrial society just a little bit ahead of the West. So if you define getting out of it as being more like the bubble era, then no, it hasn't. But the question is, is bubble era type capitalism sustainable? Is that kind of growth sustainable? Is it healthy? Does it make citizens happy? And that's a much bigger and much more different question.
question, and I don't think that I or anybody has the answer to it. What I do know is that Japan has and continues to navigate the strange landscape that we find ourselves in. So things like the birth rate dropping off like it has in Japan, that's, that's not unique to Japan. That's happening all over post-industrial democracies across the world. If you're talking about young people struggling with what the future is going to be, you know, Japanese people started doing that in the 90s. Maybe Americans started doing it in the 2010s after Lehman shock, but it's very similar. Political chaos that happened in Japan, where you have like these prime ministers coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, and you don't know what the government's... I mean, America's arguably been going through that for the last, you know, five to ten years as well. Our last and final question, Matt. Um, do you think that there's a future that Sony would return uh, back to its glory days? We live in an era where making things is much less the priority. Sony is an expert maker of things, stereos, portable players, televisions, all sorts of electronic gadgets that defined what the cutting edge was in the 20th century. But we're in the 21st century now, and it's much more about intellectual property, ideas, data, sharing, networking. Those were never Sony's strengths to begin with. And arguably, it's, it's still surviving and thriving because it, it makes things like the PlayStation 5, which is not only a game machine, but kind of a media hub, you know, and it owns movie studios, it owns record labels and things like that. So Sony is not out of the picture, but I think it's, it's almost a little unfair to ask if it's going to go back to its glory days because its glory days are, were very much horse and buggy compared to what we're living in now, which isn't, I, I don't mean to disparage their style. I love Sony's 80s products, but you're talking about physical electronic devices because they're not really a software company. They, they never were. I mean, of course, there's Sony, there, there's Sony games making, producing video games and stuff, but Sony bought a movie company. Do you know what I mean? It, it never, it didn't start out that way. It bought record labels and things like that. It, it bought game development companies. It's tough to be a, a trendsetter you know, a, a cultural trendsetter. That's like another level up from being a successful company. And actually, sometimes it isn't even linked to being a successful company. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us here today, despite your busy no, schedule. I'm happy to talk. For those who don't know about your book, and they would like to learn more about Pure Invention, could you share more with them? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I'm always happy to talk about my book, Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. And, and really, you know, if you enjoyed this, if you enjoy Japanese uh, pop culture, I think you'll really enjoy the book because it's my attempt to, to answer the question, which many of us feel but don't have an answer for, is like, why do we love stuff from Japan so much? Why does it have this hold over us? And, you know, I did that by exploring the, the stuff that I think is nearest and dearest to our hearts as non-Japanese people, which is Japanese products, hit Japanese products. So if you like things like the Game Boy or the, you know, the Nintendo Entertainment System or the Tamagotchi, you know, if you like Godzilla and Ultraman and Pokemon, if you like Hello Kitty, you know, if you like anime and manga, I go into all of these topics and many more on the book. It should be available uh, at, a, at a nearby bookstore. It was, uh, it, it's published by a major publisher, Crown, in the United States. And uh, Kinokunia, look for it at your local English language bookstore. Uh, look for it on Amazon. And thanks for listening. <laughs>